Philippians chapter 2 this morning as we get ready to dive in. I just want to say a big thank you to those who showed up yesterday uh, to help with our gym cleanup. Uh, Man, we are getting ready. Uh, I'll keep pushing this vision with you guys, but we are getting ready to renovate that facility. Um, That facility was built in 1979 and as far as I understand has not been touched since. Um, So it is just chilling there Um, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done to make that gym um, usable for the ministries of our church that we currently have, as well as the ministries that we're looking forward to adding and building as we move forward. Um, And so yesterday, a few of us showed up um, and uh, took uh, one of the upstairs areas that has just been a storage room, basically, uh, for the last several years and cleared it out. Um, And we got it done in record time, about three hours of just chunking stuff over a balcony and hauling it out to a trailer and then to the landfill. Um, And so, man, it was just a good time uh, yesterday. um, I I just want you all to know there's a side of Wes I got to see yesterday that no one gets to see, and I'm calling him out on it this morning, all right? So if y'all don't know Wes, Wes did our scripture reading this morning, um, and Wes is a tough exterior man, that beard and that shaved head and that man, I'm a man's man, and his big old buckle that he didn't earn, all right? But he just, man, he's just that. He's a man's man. But yesterday, as we were cleaning out the uh, upstairs, I can't do it. I can't help it, Wes, man. I got to do it. We cleaned out the upstairs, and Wes was making fun of Tyler because Tyler kept wanting to keep stuff, and Wes was like, man, have you all brought the wrong person to a throwaway party? He keeps wanting to keep all this stuff. And so we go, Wes and I, and my son Gavin drove to the landfill to dump all this stuff in the landfill. We had a big dump trailer. It was a whole, whole, whole ordeal, all right? And so we back this trailer up. Wes picks it up or whatever. It has a lift on it, hydraulic lift on it to pick it up, and it's just going to dump everything down into the pit. Well, it jams up. All the stuff gets stuck. And so Wes and I are literally reaching around, grabbing stuff out of the trailer, throwing it into the landfill. And Wes spots at the very last second a stuffed lamb. And Wes didn't have the heart to throw the stuffed animal into the landfill. (laughs) So Wes grabs the lamb, puts it in the back of the church van, and brings the lamb home. And so I got to see a side of Wes I've never seen before. That tough exterior got broken down for a a 12-inch fluffy uh, probably 50-year-old lamb. I don't know when that thing was made. But uh, if y'all want to see the lamb, y'all just go ask Wes. I'm sure he'll send us pictures later. Um, did you wash it yet? Y'all also have to know Wes is one of the biggest germaphobes I know. And so for Wes to even go to a landfill with me, much less crawl in the back of a trailer and throw things out, it was like, man, this was a big deal. So Wes, thanks for your heart, man. Glad I got to embarrass you. Uh, Tyler and Megan, and for all those who who helped out with that, man, we're just grateful for y'all. Thank you for being a part of that day. Um, We are going to have several more work days over the course of the next year. Um, There's just a lot of declutter and work we've got to do in the church. Um, Man, this church has been so faithful over the years of just doing ministry. But part of that is that you just accumulate things, and um, everybody's always afraid to throw things away. Um, And so it just gets shoved in closets and every nook and cranny that you can find. Um, And so we're at a position now where it's like, hey, we need to clean out and start some some fresh pieces. Um, And so we'll let y'all know when those next events are coming up. Uh, But we would love a few more hands to help on those days. Uh, We got it done in record time, but mainly because Wes and Tyler were literally chunking stuff over a balcony. And so, man, we just made it happen. Hannah was our organizer. She did great. Um, so think, not Hannah, sorry. Did I say Hannah? I said Hannah. <laughs> Megan was our organizer. Um, and uh, we just appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for y'all's faithfulness. Um, 
This morning, as we get ready to dive into Philippians 2, I just want to give you a background a little bit about what's happened in Philippians before we read the passage today. Um, Paul is uh, the writer of Philippians, and uh, if you don't know Paul's story, Paul began as Saul, a, uh, a Pharisee, a man from a great family background. He came from great wealth. Uh, he was a teacher of the law. Uh, had the Old Testament, uh, at least the first five books of the Old Testament, memorized word for word, as many of the Pharisees would have been required to do as a part of their job. Um, Paul, uh, excuse me, Saul did not support Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, in fact, he denied that Jesus was the Messiah for many, many years. Uh, Jesus had already come. He had lived his life. Uh, he had died, had been buried, rose from the dead, and ascended. And Saul begins his ministry uh, really at the stoning of one of Jesus' disciples. Um, and so if you want to just put that in perspective, Saul's beginning of his ministry was to kill one of the people who supported Jesus. All right. So if that puts in perspective who Saul is and what his heartbeat is. Saul has this amazing experience, though, as he's headed to Damascus. He's actually on his way to persecute a bunch of people who follow Jesus. He's trying to snuff out this movement of Jesus. And so he heads to Damascus with papers giving him permission to throw a bunch of people in jail and to persecute them. Uh, and on his way to Damascus, he has this eye-opening experience where the risen Savior appears to him as a bright light. He's blinded, and he hears the voice of Jesus calling him by name. Uh, and he says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. And Saul has this incredible experience where the risen Savior and himself meet on this road, and Saul's life is forever changed because of it. It is such a radical transformation for Saul that just days later, Saul finds himself being discipled by some of the very people he had come to kill. All right, And so he finds himself in that room with those people being loved and encouraged. It's this incredible story of grace because I'll be honest, if I were one of those disciples and I knew who Saul was, I would have a hard time walking into the room and loving that man. All right? But these men walked into the room and loved Saul as he was. They encouraged him, and in fact, they led him to a place uh, where he changed his name. He changed his ministry. Uh, the direction of what he was doing completely took a 180, and he went from persecuting Jesus and his followers to being one of those followers and really starting a movement that would change the world. Uh, so Saul became, becomes Paul. Paul writes most of the New Testament, uh, and here's how Paul does that. Paul travels uh, all around the Middle East, parts of Africa, and even into Asia, uh, and even some Europe. In fact, I had the privilege many, many years ago, uh, I, I spent six months on mission in Poland, uh, and at the tail end of my time, I got to go to Naples, Italy. And there is a port at Naples, Italy that has a, a structure built there in honor of Paul because it was a port that Paul himself had landed in to begin one of his missionary journeys through parts of Europe. And so I got to stand in a place where Paul had been. And man, there's nothing more incredible than that except maybe standing in places where Jesus stood. I'd still like to do that one day if I can convince my wife to travel that far. All right, so, uh, but we'll get there. <clears throat> All right, so I've stood where this guy Paul stood, but Paul does these missionary journeys. They're big loops that he does. And the first time he goes through, he's literally just stopping in villages and cities, and he is sharing the good news of Jesus Christ planting churches out of people who know nothing about the gospel except for what Paul teaches them. And so Paul has this incredible mission of taking someone who knows nothing about Jesus, knows nothing about the God of the Bible, knows nothing about Hebrews and all this, like they know nothing about any of that. They don't know the law. They're not following him. 
He walks into these cities and he has this incredible task of shining a light into the darkness, setting an example for these people, and then creating structure by which these people can keep worshiping after he leaves. He plants a church. He comes into these communities. He reaches the lost. He gets them together into a group and he says, hey, I'm going to leave you with leadership. I've got more to do. And then he would go to the next city and he would do the same thing. And then the next city and do the same thing. And then years later, he would repeat that journey. He would cycle back through and he would visit all of those same places, but also plant new churches on his way. And he would do that three times. And in the course of those three journeys, Paul had an incredibly difficult time. Uh, Paul was uh, stoned. Uh, and, and when we say stoned, uh, we, we may hear that and go, you mean he was high? No, uh, they threw rocks at him and tried to kill him. All right, they stoned him. Uh, he was shipwrecked multiple times. He even spent a night out on the sea uh, because his boat went under, <clears throat> and he literally just had nowhere to go, couldn't swim to shore, and so he's just stuck out in the middle of the water. All right, he was flogged and beaten. He was thrown into jail multiple times, and eventually Paul would lose his life over this gospel message that God had placed in him to go and to teach others about. And so when we talk about Paul's missionary journeys, we need to understand this wasn't just a, hey, let's go hang out for two weeks and tell people about Jesus. This was Paul transforming his life, dedicating himself to the mission of God, and putting his life at risk to do this. This wasn't an easy journey. And, and then what, what Paul would do, even while he was in jail and, and when he was imprisoned, and uh, even when he was just in seasons of in-between where he might be back at his home base, just kind of hanging out for a little while, Paul would write these letters of encouragement back to these churches, and that's where we get most of our New Testament. Books like Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, First and Second Timothy, all of those are letters that Paul wrote to these people that he had left in charge of these churches. And so what we're going to read from this morning is a handwritten note that Paul himself sits down and says, I got to encourage some people about something. These people who I loved, <clears throat> these people who I need to, to sh give some theology to, some people that I need to teach some things about, but most importantly, just some people that I just need to, to speak some life into for a minute and remind them of the purpose, why I came to their city and why I told them what I told them and why they still continue to meet together. And so in Philippians chapter 2, we read this passage that Paul has written to the church at Philippi. And it picks up, let's pick up in verse 12 of chapter 2. He says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray together over the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Father God, we are grateful for your word. God, we are grateful how it teaches and instructs us. And God, we are 
Um, just excited, Father, to, to study its pages this morning, to learn and to listen and to glean a little bit about who you are and who you're calling us to be. And so this morning, God, would you use the words of Paul, God, just to speak clearly into our lives, that we would grow and we would become uh, the people of God that you desire us to be. God, thank you for the preservation of your word, God, that um, we know that we can trust that the words we find on these pages, God, are, are trustworthy, um, that they are whole, that they are your words to us. And God, as we uh, learn from it this morning, God, we just pray that you would help us to submit fully to it, God, that there would be nothing that we hold back in reservation. God, we love you. We praise you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Jason, would you mind grabbing me a bottle of water from the fellowship hall, or the Welcome Center, man? Thank you, bud. I'm a little parched. <clears throat> All right. Um, let's, let's dive in, guys. So Paul is writing again to the church at Philippi, and I love just, again, just in context, picking up in verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So based on our context, we understand Paul has been with them in present, uh, in his presence physically in their city. He has taught, he has instructed, and they obeyed when he was there. But now he's going, hey, it's not just important that you obey when I'm with you, but it's important that you do it even more so when I'm not. This is like a, the dad statement of the year, right? Like It's like, Gavin, son, I love you. You better act right when I'm in the room, but doggone it, you better act even better when I'm not. Not, right? Like it's the dad statement. Thank you, bud. I appreciate you. Um, it is the dad statement that says to us, hey, it's not just important that we do it when people are watching, but even when people aren't watching. And this morning, what I want to ask the question of us this morning is, what is it that we should be, do, uh, should be doing, whether people are watching or whether people are not watching? Because this is the statement that Paul draws them to. He says, hey, I was with you, now I'm not. There's something important that I need you to do uh, no matter who is around. Whether it's me, other disciples, or no one at all, it's important that you do something. So the question becomes, what is it? Let's look together at the end of verse 12. He says, uh, obey, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. And then he says this, here's what I need you to be doing. I need you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does it mean to work out our own salvation in fear and in trembling? And here's the best synopsis that I can come up with, the best thought that I can give to you about what Paul means by this, it, not only to his writers, the people that he's writing to, rather, uh, but also to us today, the contemporary version. L let me help us understand this. He says, literally, to work out your salvation in fear and trembling is this idea of perfecting what was started in you by someone else. Because here's what happens to us a lot of times in our faith. We borrow someone else's faith early on in our salvation. We borrow someone else's faith. Let me, let me put that in perspective. Many of you will have a testimony something like this. I was an unbeliever. I was kind of doing my own thing. And then this person came into my life and shared some truth with me and shined some light into my life. And I borrowed based on what they said, I believed. And then all of a sudden your faith got attached very heavily to that person. 
And for a season, you became almost a disciple, hopefully a disciple, of that person. You followed them where they went. You did what they did. You listened to what they said. And what they said was important to you. You applied it to your life. But you were listening to this person because of the relationship that was built between you and them. We have this idea of of, of literally borrowing someone's faith. I will follow because they follow. But then we have this crisis of faith that happens at some point in our lives. Some point in our lives where we separate from that person, whether by our own choice, their choice, or God's providence, whatever it may be, we are separated from that person for a season. And because of that, we now have the challenge of figuring out whether or not we really believe that stuff or whether we were just doing it because that person did it. And that becomes a very challenging thing for us to ask and to wrestle with. And it was the very thing that the church at Philippi is wrestling with. Paul walks into their city, declares Jesus, and a bunch of them go, yeah, I'll sign up for that. And they start meeting together. And then Paul leaves and they go, what now? Paul's not here to tell us what to do. And Paul writes them this letter and he says, you need to own your faith. Work it out. Figure it out. Study on your own. Go deeper than you've ever gone before. You don't need my voice in your life 24-7. In fact, it's not my voice you should be following at all. It is God's voice in your life. But he puts the ownership on them. And so I want to ask the question this morning as we get ready to go into this a little deeper and even into the next several verses, but we talk about this idea of uh, of Paul's challenge to them, but the question really becomes, am I still borrowing someone else's faith or have I gotten to where I've worked out my own salvation? I know why I believe what I believe and I am firm in it no matter what anyone tells me. Because the ownership is not on a pastor for that. The ownership is not on a Sunday school teacher or life group leader for that. The ownership is not on a mentor, a father, a mother. Doesn't matter. Uncle, grandpa, grandma. Doesn't matter. The ownership of your faith completely and totally comes back to you. I love the story of the sower. Jesus gives this parable in in Matthew and several of the other gospels. Um, He tells this story about a sower, a farmer who goes out and he just begins to cast seed. And the seeds fall on four different types of soil. And and these kind of spring up and some of them uh, spring up for a second and then they, they fall out. Some of them never spring up because it falls on a hard ground and the birds come and scoop it up. Some of it gets sprung up, but their, their roots are shallow and so they can't handle the sun and they fall out. And the only one that really grows is the seed that falls on the good soil where it can create deep roots, where it can get the nutrients that it needs, and it springs up and it multiplies itself. And what I love about that parable, that passage that Jesus teaches us, is a couple of things. Number one, the responsibility of the sower was simply to cast the seed. Someone came into your life and cast the seed of the gospel in your life. And once they did that, their responsibility was kind of done. Now, that doesn't mean they can't walk through life with you. We can read Jesus' words a little bit further along that they need to walk through life with you and disciple, and that's great. But, but man, the real responsibility was simply, let me just cast the gospel out to you. But then the responsibility of the seed to grow was dependent very much on the soil that it fell on. 
There was a responsibility of the one receiving the seed to say, I'm going to let that seed go deep inside of me and create something of a firm foundation that we sang about just a little while ago. I'm going to let those roots grow really deep in my life, and I'm going to spring forth something productive for God's kingdom to the point that it multiplies. But you never hear from the sower beyond the point of him just casting out the seed. The rest of it is dependent on the soil. And so this morning, I want to just challenge us as this first part of just saying, man, God says, work out your salvation. Are you borrowing something that someone has given you or have you figured it out for yourself and said, this is mine and no one can take that from me. I know what I believe and why I believe it and nothing, nothing will cause me to shudder. Paul says, work out your salvation, but he doesn't just say work it out. He says, work it out in fear and trembling. Now, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews together. We just finished it, thankfully, a couple weeks ago, or last week, I guess. But as we were walking through the book of Hebrews, we got to this part of Hebrews where he talks about this idea of walking into God's presence with confidence, that the veil is torn, and God's, God's uh, presence is open to us anytime we want it now, and it's not reserved to a holy place that only the high priest can go into, but any of us can access God's presence anytime we want. And he says, approach with confidence. But then Paul uses these words. He says, work out your, your, uh, your uh, salvation with fear and trembling. And the question is, how do we balance this idea of walking into God's presence with confidence while still working out our salvation with fear and trembling? How can those things coexist at the same time? Am I supposed to be confident in God or am I supposed to be in fear and in trembling of God? Which one is it? Or is there a way for these three things to coexist? And the answer is, there is a way for these three things to coexist. We have confidence as we walk into God's presence because of the work of Jesus Christ. We have fear and trembling because he's still God. And so I want to just caution us for a moment. Because I think Paul's words to us this morning are, work out your salvation and understand that it's important because you are standing before a holy God. It's not a salvation to play games with. It's not a salvation to just dabble with and then walk away from. Salvation with us, our relationship with Jesus, is meant to be something that we walk into with fear and trembling, understanding that we walk into the presence of the God who spoke the universe into existence. And that deserves some amount of humility. That requires some amount of reverence and fear and awe. And so this morning, maybe you have borrowed someone else's faith for a little while and maybe you just kind of dabbled in it a little bit or maybe you've just kind of let that fade. Maybe you forgot about this God of the universe. Maybe you've not realized how powerful he really is. Maybe you've just been playing games with your faith. This morning, God says, stop. Just work out your salvation. The ownership is on you. Do it with fear and trembling. Recognize who I am, but work it out. Get your stuff together. He doesn't stop there, though. There's another thing that he says will work as well. Look with me at verse 13. He says, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. For it is God who works in you. There's actually three times in this passage that we'll read the word work. 
The first time we read and it was on us, our ownership. The second time we read it, Paul changes the ownership. And he says, it is God who works in you. You know what I love about Jesus' teachings is that he always gives just very practical things. He tells this story about a prodigal son. A son who had lived in his father's house and had known the blessings of being in the father's presence, but decided it wasn't worth it anymore for him to stay in God's presence or in his father's presence. And so he asked for his inheritance, he asked for his father to bless him, and then he leaves. And he goes out into the world and he sows his wild oats and he does his thing and he finds himself at the end of himself, literally no money left, no friends to speak of, no home to live in, nothing left. And he is literally uh, just uh, down to feeding pigs and so hungry that he's willing to eat what the pigs are eating. He's literally lost everything. And then we read this point where this boy realizes that, man, he could just go home to his father and, um, and, and apologize and that maybe, just maybe, his father would allow him to be a servant in his house. He knows that his dad won't let him come back as a son, but maybe he'll let him come back as a servant. And so this man picks himself up and dusts himself off as best he can, and he begins the journey home. And Jesus' story tells us that as he was still just a long ways off, it says that the father who is sitting on the front porch of the house sees his son coming from a long way off. And when as soon as he sees his son coming off the horizon way far away, the father hops off the porch and runs to meet his son. And this is a powerful story because what it teaches us is there was ownership on the son's side. The father could not run to the son while the son was still in the slop. But as soon as the son said, hey, I want to get out of the slop, and he took a step towards the father, all of a sudden the father goes, there's my boy, and he takes off running and he meets his son. And here's the thing, man, the son tries to just tell him, hey, dad, I'm sorry, like if you'll just let me come back and be a slave, like I'll do that as long as I get like food in my stomach and somewhere to sleep. And the dad's like, what are you kidding me? No way, we're throwing a party. My son who was dead is alive. My son who was lost has been found. Like put the best coat on him, put some rings on him, his finger, like kill the fattened calf. We're having a party. Like, man, it's a huge celebration to the point that his brother gets so jealous that he's like, dad, why are you doing this? Like, I've been here the whole time. You've forgotten about me. And the dad's like, no, man, I hadn't forgotten about you, but we got to celebrate that my son, your brother has come back home. And what I love about that and what I love about Paul's teachings is that they go literally hand in hand. It's like they come together and it's like, man, there is ownership on our part to work out our salvation and to quit borrowing someone else's faith. But the minute that we say to God, God, I want it, I desire it, I'm coming towards you, God runs to us. And it's in his power and in his authority that we are restored into his kingdom as children, not by ours. Now, we still have to make the choice. We still have to say we desire it and we want it, but it is the work of God's Spirit. Listen to that verse again, verse 13. For it is God who works in you. The minute we say, God, I want it, God says, here I am. And it is this beautiful picture of our responsibility, but God's authority in our lives. And too many times we're missing one or both of those, though. I don't want to take the responsibility, and so I never leave the slop. I just sit in it. C.S. Lewis said it this way many years ago in his writings. He said it's like a child who's content to play in the mud, unaware that a vacation at the beach is available to him. 
That's the Chris Bates translation of that, by the way. It's like we just play in the mud, unaware that God has so many good things for us. And if we would just stand up, if we would just work out our salvation, God would do a work in us. There's this dual nature. But this dual nature comes with a purpose. It's not just that we would be saved, although that is important. And for many in the room, maybe that is where you are this morning, in need of salvation. But it's more than that. For those in the room who've already been saved for maybe a number of years, he continues for me and for you. He says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, the continuation of this is not just that we are saved and not just that God pulls us out of the slop and not just that we have ownership, but it becomes this idea that, man, God has good works for us to do. And we can't just be content with the joy of our salvation. See, anybody who just sits back in a pew somewhere or in a chair somewhere comfy saying, man, I'm so glad that God saved me, but you never take it to anybody else, you are in bad understanding of the gospel. The gospel is never meant to be held on to and hoarded. It is meant to be shared. It is meant to be proclaimed. It's meant to be spread. It's meant to be proclaimed and, and cast out as that parable of the sower. It is meant to be shared and spread. And so he says, man, it's God working in you, but your ownership both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. And then he defines for them about, a little bit about what it looks like to work for God's good pleasure. Verse 14, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Let me be real clear to you this morning. If you have given your life to Jesus, if you have worked out your salvation and God has worked out in you, you have one goal in this life and that is to be a light in a very dark place. That's it. It's that simple. Now that may be that you do that as a resource officer at a school. It may be that you do that as a landscaper. It may be that you do that as a tool designer. It may do that, be that as a stay-at-home mom or a teacher or a musician or a whatever. It can be anything, but you shine as a light in the darkness. It is your job to proclaim what God has done in you so that others might come to know him because it would have been real easy for Paul on this road to Damascus to go, man, Jesus, thanks so much for rerouting my life and stopping me from killing a bunch of people. Appreciate that. Like, thank you. I think I'll just go home now and go to the temple every week and worship. Can you imagine how the world would be different if that was Paul's understanding of the gospel? Let me just go back to the temple and worship. Let me show up to my life group every week. That'll be that. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing it. Whoop, whoop. I'm a Christ follower. No. Paul became a light in a crooked and twisted generation to the point that he sacrificed life and limb literally. Because he understood the hope of the gospel and he understood the urgency of the need to declare the name of Jesus to people who still needed it. People who had not worked out their salvation. People who have not figured out what it looks like to get out of the pig slop and be returned as a child in God's kingdom. He understood the urgency of that. And so Paul spent the rest of his life literally until his dying day. And he didn't let anything become an excuse in that. 
In fact, I mean, I love, uh, I used to joke about this. Um, Paul, when he was put into prison, it wasn't a typical prison. There was some times where he was like chained to a wall. Uh, but for the most part in Paul's later years of life, um, he was more like under house arrest than like in a physical jail. Uh, but, but Roman house arrest was a little different than our house arrest. They didn't have fancy GPS trackers to put on your ankle. Instead, what they did was they chained a guard to you all day long, and that guard went with you everywhere you went. You were allowed to leave your house. You were allowed to still conduct business. You were allowed to still do things. But the guard literally traveled with you everywhere you went. He was your GPS tracker. All right, and so what I love about Paul is in his writings, he talks about this idea like I am in bondage to the gospel and I literally have this guy who is chained to me all day long and as long as he's chained to me, he's going to hear about Jesus. And I'm like, my goodness, what a mentality to have. And I used to joke about it when I was in college. Uh, when I met my wife, I was working at Target. Well, we were working at camp together. That fall, I worked at Target, uh, and I was in the electronics and toys department, which was crazy. My first day was Black Friday, terrible hiring decision on the management there. Uh, but they literally threw me into the electronics department on day one. With, uh, it, was, it was crazy, insane, all right? And I remember at the end of the night, we were told by management, your job when we close the store is you go aisle by aisle and you work in teams of two and you reset all of the shelves. So if there's something that's out of place, you put it in place. If it doesn't belong in your department, you put it in a shopping cart and you take it to the right department. You line everything up with the correct label and pull it to the front of the shelves. But we worked in teams of two to do that and we weren't allowed to leave until we were done. And so I had this guy named Ian who worked on my team. He was my other guy. If there was ever an atheist in this world, Ian was it. <laughs> Ian was very open about the fact that he did not believe in the Bible. He did not believe that Jesus was God's own son. He did not believe any of that. And so I made it my mission. <laughs> I was like, you're chained to me like Paul was to a guard, bro. Good luck, man. You're going to hear about Jesus tonight. Sorry. And it was my mission. Every time we closed the store, every time Ian was with me, he had to walk down the same aisles that I walked. I had the right side. He had the left side. And we were talking about Jesus the whole way. And it was like, man, that became my, my mission. That was, that was me being a light in a dark and crooked and twisted generation. And man, God calls every one of us to live life that way. No matter what your vocation may be, no matter what community you might find yourself in, no matter what circle of friends you have or don't have, God declares to you this morning, if you have worked out your salvation and God is doing a work in you, your mission is to ensure the salvation of others. This responsibility is not something we should take lightly. This ownership that Paul pushes on us this morning, he says, man, you got to own your faith and, and you got to own the mission. You got to be about being a light. How do we do that well? He tells us, verse 16, hold fast to the word of life. That's it. That's the only directions he gives us. Now, before that, he talks about this idea of do everything without grumbling and without fighting. That's just so we don't, just don't look like jerks in front of people. But he says the most important thing, this idea of being a light in the darkness, the easiest way to do that is to hold closely to the word of life. Hold fast. Don't ever let it go. This book... Man, I, this Bible was given to me five years ago on my ordination. And uh, the binding has fallen off of it already. And I mean, it's just falling apart on me. It's time for a new one. 
I've got smudges on the, I don't know if y'all can see, but that's exactly where my thumb goes every time to flip through my pages. Y'all can see the grunge, you know, like, wash your hands, Chris, all right? Um, like, even on the back of the binding, you can see where I hold it right there. It's just, this, this book, this book is so important to me because I find in this book the words of life that keep me going. I find in this book, I find the love story that Jesus has for me. I find the commands that he gives me and who he wants me to be and, and how he desires me to live my life as a husband and a father and, and a son and, and a pastor and all the other relationships that I have in my life. I find his instructions for me in this book. And so I hold fast to this book. It goes with me everywhere I go. It, I have this little leather satchel that somebody gave me years ago and my Bible goes with me in my satchel everywhere that I go to every meeting that I'm in and every coffee shop conversation that I have. Like the Bible is with me everywhere I I go hold fast to the word of life but there's another translation of word of life that i want to focus on for just a second flip with me to the book of john chapter one <clears throat> john chapter one John begins his gospel a little differently than the other gospel writers do. The other gospel writers tell about the nativity scene, the angels and the shepherds and the, the barn and the manger. John chooses to skip all of that, and he says this instead. In the beginning was the Word. Not the Bible. Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And listen to this. In Him was what? Life. This Word of life that Paul refers to, you could read it as the Bible if you want to, and that's a good thing. But he doesn't just declare that we need to hold a book almost as an idol of what Wes talked about a little while ago. Did you know that we can idolize the Bible <laughs> as a book? We were joking yesterday. We were cleaning out that upstairs area, and we found two Bibles that were obviously very old Bibles. And none of us had the guts to throw them away. <laughs> so it was like, I don't want to throw away a Bible. <laughs> like, I can't do that, you know? Like, and maybe sometimes we kind of idolize the book itself. But you could also read Paul's writings and you could say, man, maybe he understood the same thing that John understood. That Jesus is the word of life. And I need to hold fast to him. He says in verse 4, John chapter 1, in him was life, and listen to this, and the life was the light of men. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We're on this mission to tell people about Jesus. We're on this mission to make sure that the people around us know who God is. And we are on a mission to be a light in a dark place. And the beautiful thing about all of this is that while we have the ownership of shining the light, God himself is the light. And John tells us, man, very clearly that the darkness will not and cannot overcome that light. Find hope in that today. Sometimes we get beat down and worn down. We share the gospel. We do our thing. We proclaim Jesus, and we just get tired. 
I get to meet with a lot of pastors during my time, and uh, man, I've, I've been in ministry literally since day one. I was at church camp when I was two weeks old. My dad was a pastor. I grew up in church. Man, I've seen it. People just get exhausted. So this morning, maybe if you're tired and that, maybe if you're a little worn down, be reminded that it is God's light that shines, not yours. And it can't be overcome. And then watch this, Paul's words. It's so cool. Paul's my hero. Verse 17 of Philippians chapter 2. As we wrap up today, he says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Man. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul literally just said, man, even if I have to pour my life out so that you will follow Jesus, I'll do it with joy. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Go be a light. Be okay being poured out. This morning, as we get ready to sing our last couple songs, I just want to encourage you with a couple of things as we close. Maybe today is the day that you're going, man, Chris, I've never really worked out my salvation, or maybe I never got past the place of borrowing someone else's. And this morning, I just need to come, and I just need to say to God, God, I'm owning it. I want it, and no matter if anybody mentors me, and no matter if anybody walks with me, although we hope someone will, I'm going to own it either way. It's mine. And man, this morning, as you do that, maybe you need to be encouraged by the fact that God is going to do a work in you. Or maybe you gave your life to Christ years ago. You've already worked out your salvation. Man, you are, you've done that with fear and trembling. But, man, maybe you've kind of lost sight of being a light in the darkness. Or maybe you're just tired this morning. And you need to be reminded that God is doing the work in you. And it's through his power and his authority, not yours, that all of this will be accomplished. Maybe you need to pray and just thank God. Maybe you need to come forward and just spend some time up here praying as we sing a song. Or pray where you are. But maybe you just need to praise God. Thank him for the power and the authority of his light as you hold fast to him. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for the sacrifice that you gave for us, God, that makes all of this possible. That story of the father seeing his son come and God is, a, is an incredible depiction of what you did for us, God, that you have, you run to us. You embrace us, God. You welcome us into your family, but there's an ownership side on our, an ownership piece on our side of that, God, that we got to stand up first. We got to make the decision that we want out of the slop. And no one can do that for us. Not a pastor, not a Sunday school teacher, not a mentor, nobody. We have to make that choice. And so, God, this morning, I just pray that if there's one in the room, Father, who needs to make that choice today, God, I pray that today would be the day that they say, I want to get out of the slop and I want to pursue my Heavenly Father. And, God, I pray that you would begin a work in their lives, God, that would just transform them as they hold fast to the word of life, as they hold fast to Jesus. God, for the one in the room who's tired today, they feel poured out like a drink offering. (laughs) Remind them, God, that you 
you're the source. You're the source that is infinite. And God, we can be renewed in your presence. We can be restored and refreshed. Through your power, not ours. God, would you just remind us all that we need to be a light in a wicked and crooked generation. That we need to have our our act together, God. We need to be a body who doesn't grumble and complain, and but God, rather a body that just hold fast, holds fast to you and works together for the kingdom. God, remind us to be a light in a dark place. God, we thank you for your word, how it teaches and instructs. We thank you for your spirit, how it moves and convicts. And we thank you for the sacrifice of the cross, God, as it redeems and restores. God, we love you, and we praise you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.